0: So to bring us back, um, I'll just give a two-minute overview of kind of where this talk is coming from. Are you recording? I am recording. The recording is good. Yes. Um, Last week, if you weren't here last week, that's fine, because we have it recorded, so you can go on Podbean and grab that talk. Um, I talked a little bit about the relationship between mindfulness and equanimity and how mindfulness is the factor of knowing Mindfulness is our ability to keep something in mind, and equanimity is our letting go factor. It's the factor of holding something gently in awareness with a non-reactivity. Sometimes we might say that there's an attitude of love in equanimity, but it's not, it's not necessary and doesn't always occur in equanimity um, that that love factor would be there. But equanimity is the letting go factor. And we talked about kind of why those are separate One of the reasons they're separate is that equanimity, the letting go factor, is going to be brought into balance with another factor of awakening, um, which is going to be called investigation. Sometimes, many of you probably know it as curiosity, um, and I'll explain in a bit why I translate it as investigation. Uh, But it's investigation. It's another factor of awakening. And so I want to talk about investigation today and how it can be helpful in our practice and how it can be helpful as a guide um, just in daily living. It's such a big part of the path. Um, I like to talk about investigation probably more so than others because it's, it's, um, it's downplayed a lot and, and not often talked about. Like I said last week, equanimity tends to be the heavy um, enlightenment factor that we work on, especially in the West because clinging and craving is something we love to do And we're, we tend to have a culture where striving is such a issue for us oftentimes. So as teachers, the first thing we want people to get in touch with is letting go to back off and strive less. So investigation kind of gets side, side sidelined quite a bit, and sometimes it never gets brought back in. So I want to bring it back in a little bit to our discussions. um, So you can understand that uh, there is a part of the path that has to do with thinking and exploring and being curious Um, And it's balanced with our letting go factor. It's our opposite um, factor of awakening. The Buddha's insight was that suffering is an action. It's a relationship. That suffering is the result of what is happening in consciousness. It is not outside of ourselves. It's not something we trip over. It's something we create through our heart and mind relationship. And so... The world arises for us and we respond and in that relationship of response with our heart and mind we have this opportunity to create suffering right and so suffering is a relationship it's the way we relate to the world it's because it's a relationship that we can change that relationship and turn that into a relationship of contentment and well-being it's because it's not outside of ourselves that we have some agency to change the experience so that's the good news that it's not something outside of ourselves. It is in the doing suffering is in the doing. It's the way that we're thinking, behaving and feeling and interacting and engaging, which is great because we can learn to train the heart and mind to engage differently, to react differently. And in doing that, there can be a sense of freedom and buoyancy in our life as we move through our day. This interaction that we have with reality, this ability to participate, Sometimes I like to say the mind plays a role in shaping its own experience. The mind plays a role in shaping our moment-to-moment experience. This shaping, the Buddha refers to as fabrication. This participation in our own life, moment-to-moment, and how we shape our experience, or, or uh, co-create would be probably a better word, but the translation is fabricate. Um, I know in our world, fabricate can mean some like fake or create, but what it's really saying is we're co-creating the experience, Um, and the Pali word is sankara, uh, which is reaction. It's the reaction to the world. Um, Our sankaras are our reactivities. Um, So we fabricate. We play with the world in a particular way, um, and we have some agency in how we fabricate, how we co-create our moment-to-moment experience. The majority of the path is learning to fabricate in a way that leads to freedom. That is what we do. That's why we meditate. We practice mindfulness so we can enter into the present moment and see clearly how we're participating in our world. We're using mindfulness to be able to get a clearer picture about how we fabricate. And that's where the mindfulness factor comes in. We use our concentration factor, which is continuous mindfulness to stay present long enough to see fabrication as clearly as possible. To catch the fabrication as early on in the process as we can so we can head it off at the past before that aversion turns into saying something that's unskillful or doing something that's unskillful so we want to catch that fabrication as far back in the experience as possible and cultivating mindfulness through insight meditation allows us to do that that's what we're learning to do in vipassana is catch the fabrication before we've already said sent the email or yelled or had some self-deprecating train of thought that's gotten way out of control and something like that. We want to catch it early on. So we use mindfulness and concentration to learn and to be able to see clearly how we're fabricating, how we're participating in our reality. As we begin, as we begin to see clearly how the mind participates, how our heart opens and contracts, and responds how our thoughts get away from us so quickly. What types of thoughts tend to come up when we start to see that relationship, we then have a choice before that happens. We don't have a choice. It just happens so quickly. The mind is running so fast that we think and feel at lightning speed, right? So it's hard to catch when we can catch the mind in action. There can be this sense of freedom of choice. We have this sense of freedom, like, Oh, I can do this instead. I can ask this question or speak this thought or feel in this way. And there's a great sense of freedom in being able to do that. In those moments where we can catch the mind, we have some choices. One of the choices is to let go. We can engage in equanimity. So for example, we might be triggered by someone in our life. Say if someone says something, and they say something and it's hurtful and our mind is about to really lay in like, how dare you say that, that's, that's rude. I'm gonna go and have this response. We have this opportunity to say, maybe I'll let go in this moment. Maybe I'll back up and say, maybe this person's having a hard day. Maybe they're having something that's going on with them that has nothing to do with me. So we that's an example of choosing to be equanimous versus choosing to engage, right? And with practice we can be equanimous to quite a bit of dukkha of stress and reactivity even when we really really want to say something or do something that we know might not be in our best interest or the best interest of somebody else so equanimity has that place where we just we take a back seat and we say oh look i'm very averse to what this person is saying i'm very averse to this memory that's arising from my past or I'm caught in a self-deprecating loop of I'm not good enough or I'm not lovable. And instead of falling for that, I'm gonna just watch it arise, I'm gonna let it be, and I'm gonna let it move on and I'm gonna keep going. So equanimity, such a powerful tool. Sometimes equanimity just isn't the best tool for the job. So we have this other tool which is called investigation. Investigation leans into the moment and starts exploring specifically how am i participating in what's going on right now what is my role in this experience right now equanimity says i'm not going to participate i'm going to take a back seat i'm not even going to worry about how i'm participating because i'm going the other direction i'm just going to let it go investigation says huh i'm feeling really angry right now what is up with that where is that in my body is there a thought what's going on with this anger is there some pain is there some contraction How am I participating in this emotion or this mood or this thinking? So investigation fully goes in and starts to explore how we're participating in the experience. There are three types of investigation. Today I want to just talk about the thinking part, but I'm going to tell you what the other two are in some other talks. I'll I'll talk about the other ones. But the reason investigation is called curiosity oftentimes is that when we investigate what's happening, we want to approach it with this attitude of interest. What is happening? Because that's who we are in the moment. It's a very intimate relationship with oneself to say, how am I fabricating this mood? What role am I playing in this anxiety that's arising? What role am I playing in this depression? And it's not a blame statement, like what am I doing wrong? It's what is my role in this theater of experience, right? It's a contribution we're not making the whole experience. So we wanna make that clear. The curiosity is what role am I playing? Because I'm not playing the whole role. So you don't wanna look at it as like, why am I causing myself to feel bad? That's not where we're going with this. What it is is what role do I play and how can I let go of that part that I am participating in? Because the world is the world. Someone could say something that's really hurtful, right? You can be involved in a relationship that's unhealthy. That part is, is not necessarily the control part, right? We don't have full autonomy in that. We want to look for where we do have agency, where we do have freedom, and we want to use that to help ourselves get free from the suffering. So I want to make sure that you're not taking this to mean that it's your fault and that you're causing it in that self-deprecating way, because that's a very slippery slope to say you create your own reality. There's many spiritual groups and... Discussions in, in communities of spirituality where people lean into this, I'm creating my reality. Therefore, everything that happens to me is my fault and I'm the bad person. In the Dharma, we co-create the experience and we try to be accountable for only the part we can actually control. It's not about creating it, it's about co-creating it. So that distinction can be very helpful for some of us who've been told this is your fault, right? This mood is your fault or this relationship is your fault. So I want to make sure that you don't think I'm saying that because that's a completely other different type of thing. Um, and that's not how the Dharma is, is set up. So we have three ways that we can participate in the moment to moment experience. One, so it's verbal, mental, and physical. Verbal is how we talk and how we talk to ourselves and how we think about what's happening. It's the thinking. It's, huh? It's, huh? Here's this thought about this thing. I'm thinking, what am I going to do tomorrow? Is it going to be good? Is it going to be bad? Any type of thinking process affects the way we experience the world. And we can engage in skillful thinking. (coughs) There is mental engagement, mental fabrication, which is our fantasies, the way we imagine things to be. Have you ever been in a situation where you imagine something bad happening and then it didn't actually happen that way? but there was the suffering that already occurred because you imagined it was the worst case scenario. That's called mental fabrication. You participated in a future experience by imagining it a particular way, suffered from the imagining, and then had the experience and it wasn't so bad. That's fabrication, right? That's our participation. Now the experience you can't control. Maybe it was something you had to go to or you had to do. That part is just the world. But the fabrication is the imagining. So we have how we talk to ourselves about it how we fantasize and imagine and then our body. How does our body react in the moment? Is it expanded? Is it contracted? Is it tense? Are we posturing this way? Are we open this way, right? Our mood and our breathing and our physicality changes how we experience the world. So we can control the way our body is working. We can control how we're thinking and we can control how we fantasize and we imagine things. And those Realms are called fabrication. Those are the types of things we can investigate and change to have different experiences in the present moment. We can use mindfulness to learn how to fabricate differently. And in learning to do those skills, we get this huge toolbox that allows us to access the present moment in a way that really can decrease our suffering and our stress once we really learn how to do this type of fabrication. Keep in mind, the mind is fabricating all the time, unconsciously, right? It's already doing it. So you're not like doing this, um, you're not inventing this process. What you're doing is taking over the process. You're taking the reins back so you can have some agency. You're taking back some control where you can. Now, normally the unconscious mind is doing the fabricating. It's thinking and has negative self-talk and it has this fear and that anxiety, right? And this anticipation, so our unconscious mind is usually at the wheel, as I like to say. Fabrication is happening all the time. Mindfulness allows us to get into this and fabricate intentionally, intentional fabrication, in order to give us some freedom. So the type of fabrication I just wanted to talk about tonight has to do with thinking. Thinking is such a big deal. And I just wanted to give you a few things uh, about how thinking, can be th- how thinking can be thought about in the Dharma. <laughs> So I think it's really interesting that uh, when you look at the stories of the Buddha, there's this wonderful passage where the Buddha says that one of his earliest insights when he was creating the Eightfold Path was when he realized that his thinking was creating suffering. And what he said, his first big insight was that thoughts can be imbued with an emotion, right? They can be imbued with an intention, And he said this, he said, thoughts that were imbued with craving and grasping or sensuality, like thoughts that were really desirous, thoughts that were angry or filled with a sense of hatred towards or disliking, like angry disliking, thoughts of cruelty towards others. Those kind of thoughts were seeds that led to future suffering inside so that the thoughts weren't harmless, even though he may not have acted on the thought The agitation that the thoughts brought up created a sense of suffering, a sense of dukkha. And he could see that in the meditation clearly, and that was a really big insight at the time. Similarly, he noticed that when he could cultivate thoughts of letting go, thoughts of loving kindness, thoughts of harmlessness towards himself and others, not only did the immediate state of mind change to be positive, but it planted seeds where there was less stress and suffering down from those types of thinking. So for us in modern psychology, cognitive behavioral therapy, this isn't really brand new for a lot of us to say the way we think affects how we feel. 3000 years ago, this was like huge. This was like, what? Because this is not, now it's like, there's so many self-help books and this is not new to most of us. But in the Dharma at the time, this was new. This was like ancient cognitive behavioral therapy before that was really popular. The thing to note though about what he said is that in our world, coming from a sort of Judeo-Christian framework, we're often told, especially as kids, that bad thoughts aren't harmful as long as they don't lead to bad actions. You're not a bad person because you have a bad thought. We all have thoughts towards people that we don't like, and we wish them harm, and we're like, oh my God, I wish you would just, you know, whatever the case may be. That's human mind, right? That's not, that's not special. We all do that kind of stuff. So as kids, we're taught the distinction between a thought and an action, right? So early on, we're taught, oh, just because you're feeling negativity towards someone, as long as you don't hit them or push them or take their toy, you can feel whatever you want inside. You think whatever you like, because it's not, it's not harmful. Now, in the context of child rearing, that might be an appropriate approach, right? For helping kids understand their interior world. What the Buddha is suggesting is that thoughts, even when they don't lead, to actions, negative thoughts about others are harmful to us in that very moment. It creates a habit of agitation and stress for ourselves. And it tends to lead to more negativity, even if it never gets to action. So thoughts in and of themselves, he said, was a doorway to happiness and and it closed doors and created suffering. So he was really blown away by that subtlety of thinking that even when it doesn't have an action attached, thinking can be harmful to us. Have you ever been inbounds about it? Sometimes it's easier to say, do you ever know someone who does this, even though we do it too, but (laughs) (laughs) it's just easier to, you can immediately think about somebody who does something, but when you're trying to think of yourself doing that same kind of thing, it's a little bit harder. So I, what I was going to say is we've all been with somebody who's having a particular hard time and who's very agitated Mm -hmm. And let's say they're having some type of real negativity towards somebody, right? There's an argument that's been going on and they're venting to you about this person and they're talking bad about it and it's sort of gossipy. And like this person did me wrong and there's this whole thing that comes up. If you look at that from a perspective of a Dharma practitioner, we know that that agitation is also impacting that person not just in that moment when they're venting, that's impacting the way they sleep, it's impacting the way that they're engaging with their children, it's impacting how they are at work. Those negative mind states, those negative heart mind states are contagious in the psyche. They go and they start blossoming and creating a whole set of discomfort for ourselves and for others. So we know this, we've been with people and we can see that something's going on. It's harder to notice in, our, in ourselves than it is to notice in others. But this whole idea of Um, verbal fabrication is about the fact that the way we think about things and how those thoughts go can be really detrimental to our well-being and vice versa being able to to think in skillful ways in ways that perpetuate harmlessness and promote goodwill have the opposite effect right it's de-stressing to the heart and the mind and can be hugely helpful so what the buddha is saying we have to keep mindfulness in touch with how we're thinking about the world, how we're thinking about ourselves, because it adjusts our attitude towards everything that's going on in our lives. And it's just easy to forget that that's, um, that's how it works. When I talked to you guys a few weeks ago about mindful breathing, if you remember, I had told you that the word breath, when we talk about the Dharma means more than just the in and out breath. It's about the whole process of breathing. It's the in-breath, it's the out-breath, it's the physical energy that expands the lungs. It's the energy that's produced by the breathing. The reason I said that is I wanted to define mindfulness in that way, but I also wanted to explore the fact that most of the concepts in the Dharma are about the whole heart-mind system. It's not just about one aspect. The Buddha saw everything as being interconnected, which is why the, the word mind in the Dharma it's not chitta. it's not really trans, it's really heart-mind because the Buddha didn't distinguish between emotion and thinking. It's all interconnected. For teaching purposes, we separate them so we can explore one aspect. But it's all one one kind of thing. So in that same spirit, I want you to remember that thinking, when we talk about thinking in the West, we think of it as thoughts. The Buddha had a more expanded idea of what thinking meant. So thinking is the thoughts, the thoughts, that self-talk that we have. Um, It is also where we choose to direct the thinking. That's also what we keep in mind. So verbal fabrication is the thinking thoughts, but it's also why am I choosing to direct my thoughts into the past right now, into that thing that happened three years ago? Why are my thoughts so grounded in the future? Why am I spending these days thinking about the future? Why is the thought being directed there? So it's not just the content, it's where the thoughts are being directed and getting in touch with the why. Why does my mind keep wandering into the future? Why does it keep wandering into, why is it directed there? That's part of the investigation. It's the content and where the thoughts are being directed. The other part of it is how the mind is evaluating the moment. So the mind is evaluating constantly, right? I usually think of it, the easiest way to understand this is you're driving a car. You're driving a car and your mind is evaluating so many things. The speed of the car, the pedestrian, is the light going to change? You know, then you're thinking about your grocery list at the same time. You're having all of these evaluations that are happening underneath your thinking. It's not in words. It's sublingual. It's beneath thought. But your mind is constantly evaluating stuff. Is this good? Is this bad? Do I need to do this? Do I need to do that? Now, sometimes those evaluations pop up and you're actually thinking about them. Right. But oftentimes the thinking, as the Buddha describes it, is happening beneath the thought. So thought in the Dharma is both the thoughts and all that evaluation that's happening underneath. That's also part of what we explore in mindfulness. Another example would be like sometimes uh, the other day I went outside. I think it was had to do with the weather or my car. I walked outside I can't remember what it was, I saw something and then went back in and grabbed like my coat or a bag or something that I was doing and I caught myself doing it. And it, it's an example of catching the mind having made an evaluation, not in thought, but you, ju- you just made a decision, you don't even know what the decision is, but you end up reaching for the cup and drinking before you're even cognizant of being thirsty. Your mind just did this evaluation, you reached out and grabbed the cup. It's like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm dehydrated, I want more water then thoughts might arise but the reason i say that is because when the buddha talks about thinking we're talking about all of the processes related to thinking where are the thoughts going what are the thoughts and what is all that kind of junk underneath that i can't even see yet because mindfulness hasn't revealed it on how my mind is making decisions that's the part of the mind that we're talking about as mindfulness gets clearer as concentration gets clearer you'll be able to see those evaluations happening. You'll be able to watch them happen even if they're not in words. You'll be able to see the mind making decisions that are not language, but they are a type of thinking. And so I just wanted to bring that up because that's if you read stuff about this, the Buddha often talks about evaluation. How is the mind evaluating this moment? Sometimes we're like, I don't like that person. I don't like myself. I'm doing this badly. I wonder if I could do this better. Or there's just this feeling... Your mind is already evaluated, there's no words there, but there's some suffering, there's something arising that just doesn't feel so good towards yourself or towards somewhere else, someone else, but it happens so deep beneath language, you don't have no idea what the decision was that the mind just made. With mindfulness, you can see that stuff. It will bring, you can bring it into light through practice. So I wanted to give that whole definition there. So when we talk about this today and in the future, thinking in the Dharma means all of that stuff combined. Part of thinking is asking questions. When the mind evaluates things, we ask questions. Is this good? Is this bad? Do I like this? Do I not like it? Am I feeling parched? Do I need more water? Do I need more sleep? The mind is constantly asking questions in its evaluations. The questions the mind asks are driven by all of the unconscious stuff that's in the heart and the mind. The questions we ask of ourselves, of our friends, of our family, Questions we ask, such as who am I and what am I interested in doing in my life, all these evaluations are driven by unconscious habits. So we inherit a way of questioning and inquiring. The Dharma asks us to take that process and really explore it and take hold of it, to take ownership of how we're engaging our thinking about ourselves and about the world the Buddha was really interested in us asking skillful questions because he said the easiest way to take part in fabrication of this kind is to make sure we're asking really healthy questions, questions that lead us to happiness and to freedom and to compassion and to joy, that we engage the world in a way that we ask really good questions and that we ask them intentionally. If you look on the sheet I handed out, there's these sets of questions that I just wanted to talk about here because I think these are really interesting. So those top questions are these famous questions that the Buddha declined to answer. These are philosophical questions, sort of spiritual questions that are very common in spiritual philosophy and in variety of spiritual traditions, including various forms of Buddhism. Uh, Is the world eternal? Is the world finite? Is there a self? Is there no self? Do enlightened beings go on after death? Do I exist? Do I not exist? What am I? How did I get here? The Buddha said that these types of questions often do not lead to an increase in happiness, (laughs) right? The Buddha said this type of fabrication, this type of uh, consideration often just leads to more questions, but it doesn't necessarily lead to happier mind states. So he was so convinced that that was the case that throughout the Suttas, these students keep coming to the buddha and insisting that he answer these questions they try to like antagonize and coax him into answering these questions and oftentimes he would just sit there in silence and wouldn't say anything if any of these questions were asked he would just refuse to answer them to to basically say look no answer i give you is going to increase your happiness let's talk about something else Let's talk about something that can lead us to freedom or joy or compassion. We're not going to go down this other road, which is going to get us into a rabbit hole of philosophical inquiry and so on. So he was very specific about the power of fabrication and the power of the questions that we ask ourselves on who we are and how we're living in the world. If you look at the second set of questions, these are some examples of questions that can really be fruitful in daily life, in our meditation, out of our meditation. This first one I put on there, because this is one that the Buddha said really gave him insight, which is where might these thoughts lead? Where might these thoughts lead? And this is what I was talking about earlier. Sometimes we can sit there where maybe we're just by ourselves, maybe we're in line, maybe we're driving and we start thinking about something, maybe it's negative. It starts off somewhat harmless and then downhill 10 minutes later you're like in this pit of like anxiety or depression or for me it would be some kind of catastrophic awfulization or something because <laughs> I'm really good at that. I can out-catastrophize anybody. I'm like I'm really good at having thoughts lead into to bad places. Um And I'm an anxious person by nature, so it just goes, I've created an avenue for that to happen. Where might these thoughts lead? That would be a much more skillful thought than, do I exist? Because if I were to tell you, let's say I knew that this was actually a dream and none of you existed, when you go home tonight to your partners, to your families, to your kids, when you go to work tomorrow, is that knowledge going to help you with your suffering? Or might we ask, where do these negative thoughts lead? Which one is most likely to help with your well-being? That's what the Buddha is basically trying <laughs> to say. Let's ask questions and fabricate in a way that's going to be leading to some kind of peace. What is the state of my mind right now? Big Dharma question. Can be asked all the time. In fact, I would invite you to put that into your phone as an alarm on Vibrate and have that go off once a day. <laughs> once what is my mind state <laughs> right now? Once Gr- an hour? <laughs> As many as you can without people thinking you're constantly checking, (laughs) checking Facebook. (laughs) So these questions here, where is the suffering? What role am I playing in the experience? Next time you start getting angry, right? The first thing that your mind's going to fabricate is how this person did you wrong. Flip that around. What role am I playing in this experience in this moment? Can I turn mindfulness inward and immediately try and see what are my thoughts? What are my feelings? What is my reaction? Or you could see, or you could say, do I exist? Do I not exist? Or will my body continue on after death? I mean, you could do that too. But try both and see what happens and see which question might be more fruitful. Is this experience permanent or impermanent? Big Dharma question. Is this permanent? Is this not permanent? Can I do some letting go? Is this experience worth clinging to? Right? Can I back off a little bit from this these are the kind of questions that we don't naturally ask ourselves because the questions we're asking the verbal fabrications are driven by the unconscious these are questions we have to practice bringing into being these are things we have to practice because if we don't practice the mind's going to go right to all kinds of crazy stuff it's going to have all kinds of negativity and aversion and craving and ill will and stuff like that so You can see that the Buddha was really acutely aware of the power of thinking, the power of questioning and evaluating from moment to moment. The questions at the bottom. This is an example of kinds of questions that you can ask yourself on a regular basis. These are really big Dharma questions that keep us oriented to the practice and keep us grounded in the meditation. What do I really value in life? What is most important to me? If we don't ask those questions routinely, what gets placed in those spots is other people's agendas, other people's meaning, other people's voices, other people's needs. It is really important that we remind the mind to ask ourselves what exactly am I doing with my moments, right? What are my needs? in relationship to freedom and to suffering and to peace and to happiness, because the mind will automatically fill that in unconsciously. And oftentimes what gets filled into those blanks are other people telling us what they think we should be valuing other people telling us what they think we should be doing, needing, or do whatever the case may be. If you don't do this intentionally, there's a half dozen people that will gladly fill in the blanks for you. And your unconscious will more than happy to just suck that up and put it in the driver's seat. So these are the kind of questions that we ask over and over again, day to day, month to month, week to week, to remind ourselves, how do I wanna create this existence? How do I wanna be moving in my life? The other questions, how do you wanna show up in the world? How do you wanna engage with your fellow humans? It's so easy to go on autopilot it's good to remind ourselves, what is the skillful action? How do I want to show up when I walk into a room? How do I want people to remember and be impacted by my heart and mind when I leave here tonight? How do I want to show up in relationship to the rest of humanity? Are you being called to expre- How are you being called to express loving kindness in the world? That's a great thing to ask. Where in my life? Is there a space for me to be loving towards somebody? Is there someone in my life who could use an extra ear? Is there someone that could use some empathy, some caring, some concern, a text message? Well, in the future, a hug, but (laughs) an elbow, an elbow touch, you know, just like a high five, fist bump, whatever we can do. Um, So these kind of questions are much bigger questions than those top ones. And you can see the difference. One is a call to action, right? One is a loop of of philosophical inquiry. And one is how do I want to live, right? How do I want to be? How do I want to fabricate this existence? Those questions are action-based. They're calling us to action and self-awareness in our life. The last one's just a summary that I like to use in my journal, which is what skills or habits are most needed in your life right now This is skillful action part of the path. What skills or habits are most needed in your life right now to support what you value most and will help you show up as the person you aspire to be so you can have a positive impact in the world? This is a question that I've combined other things and I put this in my journal and I make sure that I constantly look at that and ask myself, have I thought about this lately? Am I back on autopilot? Or am I really asking myself, who do I want to be? The Dharma is about asking ourselves who... Who can we be in the world? Can we live a life of compassion and joy and transcendence? That's really what the Dharma is ultimately about. And fabrication is one way that the Buddha really encouraged us to go about that, to ask really skillful questions intentionally. It makes a huge change. There is this great study. Uh, maybe in the next couple of weeks I'll do a, a talk on how to create a Dharma journal that could be really effective. Um, but these questions down at the bottom, these four questions, are all rooted in different aspects of the Dharma. But I also framed them that way because there's many studies that show having clarity of those types of questions, right, increases happiness, dharma or otherwise. That human beings who ask these types of questions regularly of themselves will automatically experience an increase in well-being. And so it just so happens that the Dharma is all about this. But separate from the Dharma, this kind of inquiry and questioning is just good for self-care, right? It's really good for self-care. It's really good for well-being to get in touch with who we are and who do we want to be. But most of the time, the questions we ask are inherited. So we don't really have a way of asking the questions in a way that might be fruitful. What do you mean inherited? From our unconscious, from... The way we're raised so it could be from our religious traditions from friends family every all the questions that we are asked to ask as we are raised up as kids into adulthood oftentimes we're are the questions that we're asked are my job my career my money it, it's very materialistically driven and we're asked to do things that serve other people we're hardly ever asked what would be great self-care for you in this moment how often does another human approach you and say How can I serve you today? What would be the best way for me to cultivate a warm and loving presence for you in this moment? That's not, those questions are not in our back pocket most of the time, at least not in mine, unless I practice invoking those questions as a way of, of doing this. The handouts that you have, this monthly reflection now will make so much sense to you. Every month you will get one of these on your chair at the end of the month. To encourage verbal fabrication. Verbal fabrication sounds so clunky, but it's such a beautiful thing. This is to encourage that. At the end of the month, take some time to reflect on your dharma. What is meaningful to you in the dharma right now? How are you using it to decrease your suffering? What What is in your heart today as opposed to 30 days ago? What is most needed for you, for your spirituality? Asking those questions will completely transform your practice because it keeps the practice in the forefront of your heart and mind. So I passed this out for that reason and I will continue to do so. So here's what I'm gonna ask you to do though. Don't just look at it and answer the questions in your head. Actually write out the answers. Studies show that when you write out answers to these, the transformation in the heart and mind is actually more significant than just reading it and answering it in your own head. So that's why I printed it. So write it out and look at it and keep it. And then next month when you get another one, Look at the two. This is the, this continuity of practice I talked about. So that's why I put this there. And I, like I said, I think what I'll do is I will come up with a Dharma talk on how to keep a journal. So how you can use these questions day to day. Because what I do is I have I ask certain questions in the morning as I start my day related to the Dharma. And then I reflect on them in the evening. And 10 or 15 minutes of this kind of thing just transforms your practice in the most amazing ways. So... Verbal fabrication, how we're thinking, how we're evaluating, how we're asking questions in ways that cultivate loving kindness, hope, and well-being and this kind of good stuff.